among your people richly this morning, because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, it will help you lots if you've got um, John eleven forty-five to 57 in front of you um, as we look at it this morning. Um, and as, as we start, um, a number of years ago, Nikki and I decided we were going to watch a film one evening. Um, and I wanted to watch um, a film called 127 Hours. Um, and Nikki hadn't heard of it. Um, I said, that's fine, let's, let's watch it. She said, what's it about? I said, that's, that's okay, let's not think about that. Let's just let's, let's watch it and see how it goes. Um, and we did, and it tells a true story of Aaron Rolston, who was hiking in the middle of nowhere, and he falls into a canyon. And in the canyon, a, a boulder's been dislodged, and it traps his arm, and he is um, trapped in the bottom of that canyon for 127 hours. Um, and he gets more and more desperate over that period. Uh, and as he gets more desperate, this this kind of basic survival instinct starts to kick in. He is determined not to be defeated, and he has some provisions. They, they gradually begin to run out, uh, and he gets more desperate. He takes some action um, in that canyon, desperate action, uh, and he amputates his own arm in order to get free. Um, it is stunning. It's amazing that, that he does get free. It's a gripping story, and Nikki wasn't too impressed when she realized what was happening um, but it does show the drive to survive can be very, very powerful, wonderfully powerful. It can also be dangerously powerful. Uh, what would you do in order to survive? Uh, what would you do in order to keep what you fear you cannot lose? Now, that's a challenging thought, I think. Uh, not many of us, I hope. Uh, will have had or will have the opportunity to be stuck in a canyon with a trapped arm and discover whether we are able to do what Aaron Ralston did. Um, and, but I think day to day there is a continual question, what will we do to keep what we fear we cannot lose? Uh, back in September 22, we at Kingfisher Church began to work our way through John's Gospel. Um, we've, we've come in and out of it and we're, we're coming back to it again. After a bit of a break, we're coming back at the end of chapter 11. Uh, John, one of Jesus' friends who recorded these things that Jesus did um, in his time on earth. And, and, and John collected this material with a specific purpose. He was one of Jesus' close friends. He would have had so much material to draw from, but he chose the stuff he's put into his gospel um, for a particular point. And he tells us that at the end of it. At the end of his writing in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. But that's why he writes the gospel, and as he tracks what Jesus does, and from Galilee in the north of the country right down to Jerusalem, the, the signs that Jesus performed, the things that Jesus taught, he puts them in his gospel um, for that reason. And most of John's gospel, or a third of John's gospel, focuses on, on the final few days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. That there's a, a building up to something of supreme importance, and we are, are just on the edge of that at the end of chapter 11. In fact, the passage we have today tells us of the decisive moment when the religious leaders decide they must kill Jesus. It's been on the cards for a long time, um, but this is the moment when that becomes official policy. It's a time when they say, we're not considering any other options. Jesus must go. And I want us to think about how they got there. I want us to think, why is it that they didn't follow the signs? Why didn't they follow the signs? 
Well, let's follow what John tells us, starting in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Now, these, these people had seen something that caused them to put their faith in Jesus. What was it that they saw? Well, we need to go back to earlier in chapter 11, where uh, John tells us about um, three siblings in a family. There's Martha, Mary, and finally do go. They arrive at a funeral, in the middle of a funeral, in the five at a funeral, in the middle of a funeral. In the funeral, Martha, first of all, comes out to Jesus, and she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And then Mary comes out and she says exactly the same thing as her sister did. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is struck by the grieving. He enters into the grieving and and as he asks to be taken to the tomb, he goes there with tears on his face. And he stands in front of the tomb and he tells them to take away the stone. And it's awkward. Uh, Martha intervenes. If there's a Middle Eastern climate, the the body has been in the tomb for four days. There's going to be an odor if you take away the stone. Uh, But Jesus insists that this happens and, and it does. And then Jesus stands at the entrance of the grave and he commands, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes out. He walks out of the grave. Jesus demonstrates with his words, he is the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in him will live even though they die. Jesus commands death to release its captive and turns this funeral into a celebration of life. And so in our passage in verse 45, the Jews who saw Jesus do this trusted him. They believed in him. That they trusted he was someone they could commit themselves to in life and in death. He was a safe pair of hands. And then in verse 46, some of them report to the Pharisees. They report what they've seen Jesus do. They go to the Pharisees and say, Jesus has raised a dead man. And they saw Jesus exercise power over death. They heard Jesus invite them to be protected by that death-defeating power. And they report to the Pharisees. The Pharisees now are hearing this report, this testimony that should cause them to put their faith in Jesus. And they don't dismiss it. They take it very seriously. They hear this report and verse 47 says they call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. It was the Jewish ruling council, the highest authority in the land underneath the Romans. Remember, they were under Roman occupation But the Romans permitted this council to look after the affairs of the Jewish nation. And this council comes together and they ask, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. What shall we do? The answer is quite obvious, isn't it? In 2004, a man called Anthony Flew, who was um, a professor at Oxford, he championed a cause of atheism for, for decades in his life, for more than 50 years. But then his thinking changed. He stunned the world when he changed his view and he became convinced that the only good explanation for the world is that there must be a God. Then he said at that point in 2004, he said, my whole life has been guided by the principle of Plato's Socrates. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. It's a good principle, isn't it? Follow the evidence wherever it leads. 
So imagine if Socrates had been at that Sanhedrin in John 11. There is a man performing many signs. What should we do? Well, what is a sign? Sign points to something, doesn't it? And there are many signs. What do you do with many signs? You follow the signs. That's what you do with a sign. And Socrates would jump up, wouldn't he, at the council? Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Jesus has raised a man from the dead. It is a sign. Follow it. And here they are in the council saying, what should we do? And it's obvious, isn't it? Believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Body and soul in life and death. Because the one who believes in him will live even though they die. The Sanhedrin continue. Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Just just think about what is going on in their heads. What is their reasoning as they say that? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Jesus is performing many signs. People aren't stupid. They can follow the signs. And if he keeps putting all these signs down, people are going to start following them. And the signs point to believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing they will have life. They will have eternal life. It would be such a bad thing, wouldn't it, if everybody had eternal life? terrible if everyone starts to believe in Jesus and receives this gift from the one who has power over death what should we do it's not like um, a bit later in this same council a number of years later there's a man in the council called Gamaliel and uh, and he says in that council he says don't need to worry about these popularist people just give these things time and they all burn themselves out and he gives some example of some popular popular people who've led some uprisings, and eventually it just burns itself out. But you see, here there is just something different about Jesus and something different about the signs. There's something genuine about the signs. They can't challenge the signs. Lazarus was dead, and now he's alive. And it convinces the council. These signs are strong. They're verifiable. Everybody's going to end up believing in Jesus. But they won't follow the signs. They don't follow the evidence wherever it leads because it seems to me that they are driven by a drive to survive. They want to, they want to keep what they fear they cannot lose. See what they say? Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The concern isn't that they lose the temple and the nation. The concern is that they lose our temple and nation. The concern is that they will lose their power and their position. The Romans, they allowed this council to have some autonomy, but it was closely guarded and pretty fragile. The council were allowed a bit of power, but they fear. They fear if, if there was an uprising, if there was some sort of problem in the nation, the Romans would say, well, you're not able to manage it. Um, so we're going to come and take over. You'll get your power and your position taken from you. So Caiaphas jumps in. He's the high priest. Uh, at that time, it was a, a political, really, more than a religious role. And, and he's pretty rude as he speaks. Apparently, the, the historian Josephus says this is fairly typical for the Sanhedrin. They, that they were pretty rude in the way they spoke to everyone, especially to each other. And he launches in in verse 49. You know nothing at all, you bunch of idiots, is what he says. And you do not realize 
that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Jesus is a threat to the stability of the nation. and So obviously it's better that he dies. It's obviously, it's, it's obviously better to knock down the signpost than to follow where it leads, isn't it? No, then you have to worry about the signpost. Signposts can be annoying, can't they? It gets to get rid of the signpost so you don't have to follow it. And notice that he says, it's better for you, better for you, the ruling council. Now this is, this is the worst type of leadership, isn't it? When the leadership is most concerned about keeping power rather than doing what is right. When they're prepared to kill an innocent man to maintain their position. And Caiaphas's ruling is as clear-sighted as it is ruthless. And verse 53, the council make their decision. It's official policy. It's made in the council. Uh, official policy. Not a policy to hear Jesus out. Not a policy to arrest him and try him. Not a policy to challenge the veracity of the signs. It is a policy to kill Jesus. And it's not the only option, is it? Now, why didn't they follow the signs? Well, I think that the council understood something very important for anyone who considers Jesus. They understood that Jesus is a disturbing presence. Now, if they did follow the signs and believed in Jesus, it could mean they lose what they treasure most in the world. And they're not prepared for that. But the same is true for anyone who considers the claims of Jesus. Anyone who sees the signs testified to in the Bible. To follow Jesus could mean that you lose your position in life. It could mean that you have to put aside the comforts you've enjoyed or, or the aspirations that you cling to. It, it will mean that you must find your identity in something other than what it has been. You won't be able to stay the way you are. Uh, as, as we read the end of John 11, I don't think we feel much sympathy with the Sanhedrin, but we can be closer to them than we think. Because they had this thing. For them, it was their position and their power. This thing that mattered most to them. It was the thing that they needed to, to be who they were. That they tied up their identity, their being into having this thing. And Jesus comes and he is a disturbing presence. He makes him fear they will lose the thing they need to be okay. So they won't follow the signs. They're driven by survival. It's a, a powerful drive to survive. They do what is in their power to do in order to keep what they fear they cannot lose. And they decide to kill Jesus. I wonder about us. I wonder if we would see that Jesus is a disturbing presence in our lives. If you're looking at inner on Christianity from the outside, and you look at the, the Christian faith and, and you think committing my life to Jesus would be quite uncomfortable. If that's what you think, then you're probably on the right track. And, and if you are within and you have followed the signs and you believe in Jesus and you don't experience much discomfort because of it, you might need to start thinking again. As C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. I wonder if you would say the same. 
And, and perhaps the important thing to think about is what we do when discomfort looms. The Sanhedrin didn't follow the signs. They had this thing that they didn't want to lose, so they did what was in their power to do. They planned to kill Jesus. It's not, of course, in our power to kill Jesus, but we can shut him out. We can push his presence to the margins of our lives, and that survival instinct can be spiritually very dangerous. We can do whatever is in our power to keep what we fear we cannot lose. I wonder what that might be for us. I wonder what you fear you cannot lose. That that thing, if you don't have it, if you didn't have this thing, you wouldn't really know who you were. The thing you need in order to be okay. For the Sanhedrin, it was position and power in society. For us, it might be in a similar way, our reputation and what others think of us, what others see when they look at us. It might be some happiness. It could be a relationship or a particular set of relationships. Our family connections. Our career and the job that we have. Our sense of stability. Maybe our financial stability. Maybe just that kind of sense of being captain of my own fate. Being able to decide to do what I want. And I wonder if as we, as we go on longer in the faith a kind of stubbornness can grow in our hearts. See, the longer we go on in the faith, the the more we know of what Jesus requires of us, and we can become more adept at ignoring his challenges. Uh, I read this week, someone said, a healthy, uncomfortable faith constantly rocks you, prods you, and blows your mind. It's a faith that leaves you restless to want to know more, Not satisfied you've grasped all there is to grasp about God. It reminded me of the beginning of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. A soul panting that counts all things as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And yet the things around us, they wrap up our hearts with cotton wool and whisper we need them more than Christ. So we shut him out or we compartmentalize his word. As somebody suggested some signs for us to think about whether we are too comfortable in our faith. I wonder what you think of these. The, the first one, he said, that we are too comfortable in our faith is when there is no friction between your Christianity and your politics. Now, now he's writing from a US perspective where um, kind of Christian things and politics are so tightly wound up in a way they're not really over here. Uh, But I I think most of the world is going to the polls this year. There are elections all over the world, including our nation. We are going to be voting. Uh, Politics is going to feature highly in our thinking. And what does our faith mean as we vote? Uh, The the second thing, second sign that we may be too comfortable is there are no paradoxes, tensions, or unresolved questions for us. And we've got to a point where the staggering claims of Christ are failing to stagger us. Too settled. Third one, third sign that people, uh, that, that our, our faith is too comfortable is when people are surprised to hear you're a Christian. And I think sometimes we can enjoy that if people are surprised to hear we're a Christian because we assume the stereotype for a Christian is someone who is boring, bigoted and behind everything. 
Um, so when someone is surprised by our faith, we could take it as a compliment. Uh, but more likely, it means we're so blended into the world that following Jesus makes no observable difference. The, the fourth sign that we may be too comfortable in our faith is this one. No one at your church ever annoys you. It's the same way. We've got too superficial with the commands of Jesus to share our life together. We are keeping each other at too comfortable a distance. The fifth one, fifth sign you're too comfortable in your faith is you never feel challenged, only affirmed. There's no, there's no call to, to change in our lives. We just feel that everything is just okay. The Sanhedrin in John 11 didn't want the unsettling presence of Jesus, and so they killed him. Uh, and like them, when we don't want the unsettling presence of Jesus, we do what we can to close him out. And yet the Sanhedrin missed so much, didn't they? Now let's, let's think, what did they miss when they didn't follow the sign? What, what are the things that didn't seem to feature in the discussions they had in that council meeting? What, what are the factors which, when we consider these factors, it will swallow up the desperate grab at survival and show something so much better? First of all, at that council meeting, they don't seem to ask, if Jesus has power over death, why fear the Romans? That's the Sanhedrin's fear, that the Romans will come and take away what is most precious. But what have they really got to lose? What have they really got to lose? You'd want to say to them, the power and the freedom you think you have is just an illusion. It's Rome is the power. You're under the iron fist of Rome. You're not really in control of anything. And they did lose everything they had. Like 40 years after this, not because of Jesus, but because of their own constant wrangling for political survival, Rome came and eventually its patience ran out and they did lose everything. But the sign that they're considering in John 11 points to one who has power over death. If Jesus can give that life, that eternal life, what could Rome take from them? You know, there's, there's an occasion when um, Peter, Jesus' disciple, says to him, uh, we left everything to follow you. And, and the disciples did, really. They, they left their homes, their family, their work. They left everything to follow Jesus. They followed the signs. They threw their lot in with Jesus. And, and then Peter says that to Jesus. We left everything. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. But, but then he says, but you're going to get back a hundred times what you lost in this age. And in the age to come, you'll get eternal life. Now, Jesus says, you can't really lose when you follow him. And for the Sanhedrin, yes, the Romans could come and take your place and your position, but it won't be loss when compared with what Jesus gives. And I, and I think we might get that in theory. It's just the practice where we find it harder, isn't it? It's, it's the times when we are confronted with things that feel like they will be loss for us. Just, just to take something as everyday and mundane and as simple as reading your Bible. Now imagine somebody gets, gets through the day, they get to the evening and they, they sit down in the sofa and they take a big breath and they turn on the TV. They've worked hard and they are ready to enjoy rest and that is a good thing to do. And, and then as the TV starts up, they just think, oh, do you know what, I've not read my Bible today. I think it would be good for me to read my Bible. And that's the moment when the truth strikes home, isn't it? 
Do I continue in my present comfort or do I turn off the TV and open my Bible? And we wrestle with that. I know, I wrestle with it. I think if I lose my rest, this is what my heart's saying, if I lose my rest, it's going to be awful for me. But imagine if we said that to Jesus. Imagine if we went and said, Jesus, I've left the comfort of my evening to listen to you in the Bible. What would he say to us? What do they think they can do to him? Can they really get rid of him? No, they couldn't. Spoiler. Um, They did kill him, but he didn't stay dead. A friend of mine a number of years ago was, well, he he decided very definitely to to go on on a route through life that he knew was against what the Bible taught. He thought he had to. He thought that was the only way to be happy. And he threw himself into this lifestyle. He went on for for a number of years like it. And then he said that there was this one night when he was lying in bed and he thought, where is it going? Where is this life leading? I'm doing what I think will make me happy, but one day I will die and meet Jesus. And then what will I say? We can choose to ignore Jesus. The Sanhedrin can choose to kill Jesus. But in the end, they're still going to be Jesus. And we must reckon with that. And the third thing, the major thing that they missed, uh, and the thing to which John turns our attention, is that God is doing something so much better than their futile grasps at keeping their power. You see, in the meeting of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas launches his cynical political realism and he And he says, you don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And it's a wicked plan, isn't it? To save their skins, they will kill an innocent man. It is destructive. And then John comments in verse 51. He did not say this on his own. That's good, isn't it? He didn't say it on his own. There is something else going on in this this desperate scheme of wickedness. There There is more in the picture than what we can see. There is something more. There is something other, something bigger and better. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. John rises above Caiaphas's wicked plan. He shows that this Caiaphas is speaking better than he realizes. His words are a prophetic announcement of what God intends. And it's important to see this, isn't it? That Caiaphas intends to ruin Jesus with wicked motives. And yet there is more going on. God intends in the same destructive act to do something so different. And what we so often see is we so often see that outside bit. We see the, the Caiaphas part. We see the things in our life that only look destructive and they, they only look bad and ruinous and awful. But we're reminded here that our God has deeper intentions. That even in the most wicked of plans, the plan to murder the innocent Jesus, in that plan, God is at work intending in that act something inexpressibly good. And the good is found in the little word, for or on behalf of you see the sign in question that prompts all of this is raising Lazarus Jesus demonstrates power over death he can command death to release those in its hold but how can death 
release its victim. Now the Bible teaches us that death has that right and that claim ever since the beginning when God said the soul who sins must die. Death has a claim. Death holds to God's word that sinners belong to it. And those who sin will end in the jaws of death. So every person who has ever lived has sinned and so all have died. Psalm 49 puts it like this when, when it says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God the ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so they should live on forever. Death has an invincible claim proved in every life that has ever been lived that death is the end. So how does Jesus command death to let go? Psalm 49 goes on and says, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. The great price that no one could ever pay is going to be paid and will be paid by God himself. So the little word for, on behalf of, gently answers the claim of death. See, if the soul that sins is bound up with another, bound up with one upon whom death has no claim, and that other gives himself freely into death, and he's one with the authority to lay down his life and take it up again, then on behalf of is how he commands death to let go and never come back. Death has now no power over the one for whom Christ has died because his death buys their life. After the council meet in John 11, Jesus withdraws for a time and then verse 55 says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. It's the Passover that casts its shadow over all John's gospel. The Passover is the model of what on behalf of means. See, at the Passover, the lamb dies on behalf of the people. The death of the lamb stands for the death of the people. The Passover that, that, that celebrated that great memory of when the people were crushed under Egyptian tyranny. And in that tyranny, they could do nothing but just cry out. And God heard their cry and came to rescue them. He came in judgment over the sin of the Egyptians. And to save his people from that judgment, told them to sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the people. And the pictures and the signs were all pictures and signs until the Son of God walked on earth as the Son of Man. And John the Baptist identifies him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now in John's Gospel, that title is reaching its fulfillment. And where Jesus will be the sacrifice provided by God. The ransom price that no one else could provide is provided in Jesus Christ so that he could die on behalf of his people. So his death could answer the claims of the grave. And give justice to the authority of his promise. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So the unwitting prophecy of Caiaphas. Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation. But also for the scattered children of God. Who are they? Well people from every nation under heaven. All and any who will follow the signs and believe in Jesus. Are those already mentioned right at the beginning of John's Gospel in chapter 1 when it says, To all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. 
The death of Jesus doesn't just release people from the power of death. It creates a whole new life. And makes all who believe into the children of God. And gathers all who believe into one great body that we call the church and of which we are part today. The Sanhedrin are fixed on what they might lose. And miss what they most needed. Plotting how to keep their position and their power And yet God is working a plan of salvation conceived before the creation of the world and celebrated into all eternity. The plan of salvation that Jesus Christ, Son of God, will take our sin upon himself and die in our sin so that we can have the gift of eternal life. Eternal life in eternal love as the children of God. So when we consider whatever our earthly gains may be, Whenever we think of the things that we feel we cannot do without, but then we compare them to the immense goodness of God and his love for us in Christ Jesus. Don't we find ourselves wanting to say with Apostle Paul and Philippians, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We keep following the signs wherever they lead. Let's take a moment of quiet just to reflect personally and then we'll pray together.